good morning. How are you this morning? It is a good day to be alive, isn't it? It's a good day to breathe, to have the breath of God fill your lungs, to thank him for his goodness, his mercy, his kindness for all that he is. In this season of life, I hope that you have begun to appreciate the things that matter the most. Because those things that matter the most, usually they are right in front of us. And during the last year of life, I hope that you have determined that there are some things that are more important than other things. That there are some things that take a higher priority in your life. And that they truly begin to change who you are to make you a better person. You know, our lives are like songs. We, we live them out playing stanzas, verses, choruses. There are moments of crescendo where they rise and where we achieve things and we, we experience all the glory in ourselves that we believe life is intended to be. And then there are moments um, where the music begins to fade, it seems, and the song becomes faint. And, and those are moments that are really challenging. I know that all people walk through moments like that. Our lives are like books. Um, we are writing out chapters and we are writing out our lives as poetry. We are living them in ways that are deeply meaningful and each season of life brings a new chapter. We have to close the chapter on some to open up new chapters. And throughout the course of our lives as we write our stories, they are something unique and special created and designed for each and every one of us. The thing is, who's the audience? Who's the audience listening to the song of your life? Who's the audience that you are playing the best parts of your song to? Who's the audience that's reading the chapters, the verses, the poetry of your life, the story that's being written by you? What's intriguing about us as humans is that so many times um, we play our song and we live our song, our best song. Uh, we read our story, our best story, and the story that we write and that we try to live out. Um, we do that for the wrong audience. So many times we, we believe that the song of our life is to be sung horizontally, not vertically. We, we write the story of our life and the poetry of our life and the meaning of our life and we write it um, out as we live and yet we believe in some regard that that story is intended for a horizontal audience, not a vertical audience. And here's the thing, when you sing the song of your life or you write the story of your life for the wrong audience, they don't hear the best you. They don't read the best you. They will abandon you in your moments of deep need. They will not stand with you when you need a moment to be encouraged, to be built up. When you need a moment to be able to experience life as it was intended to be lived, and when you need a voice, an answer, when you need an audience to hear your song, they won't listen. They won't be there. That is the story of the world. And how do we overcome that? By learning who the real audience is in our lives. You see, so many times we will play the best song of our life. We will read the best parts and chapters and story of our lives to people here. I mean, think about it in your network of relationships in your perhaps your social network what you will discover is that so many things that you post you post for an audience and therefore an image that you create an image that you want to be a song that you want to sing that at least you want people to believe about you a story that you want people to believe about you you will put it out there for an audience we all live for an audience but we usually sing and live and write the best parts of our lives for the wrong audience. An audience that's truly not there for you, that truly cannot bring the peace, the wholeness, the goodness of life to bear in the deepest parts of your soul. And today I want to talk to you about, in our series, Encounter, what it means to encounter the right audience. What it means to sing the song of your life to the right audience. What it means to write the best parts, the chapters, the poetry, the meaning of your life to an audience that will always be there. To an audience that will always make a difference. To an audience that will never let you down. And I think you know the audience because he is the one that has designed and created us to be that kind of individual. A kind of individual that is not like the world around us but that is unique in our creation and intended for glory that is beyond the this world. So I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 33. Allison referenced it. 
Exodus chapter 33, because in this encounter series, um, I've been walking alongside the story of Moses. And you've seen that as you've walked throughout this series. What does it mean to encounter God? What does it mean to encounter God in such a way that it not only elicits from us a story of life change, but it elicits from us a response that is truly worshiped toward him. And I'm not just talking about a moment in a song that makes you feel good and have chills and go, oh, God was with us. No, something that goes with you each and every day that causes your song to change, the chapters of your life to become more beautiful because the audience matters. And today in Exodus chapter 33, we'll look at a portion of 33. We'll look at a portion of Exodus 34 and we'll see why the audience matters in our lives. Because when we get the audience right in our lives, that's when our song truly begins to be sung in the right way. That's when the poetry of who you are and the chapters of your life that are being written and the story of you that is unfolding truly begins to take on a meaning that is beyond the audience of this world. And quite frankly, many of us, we lose ourselves in trying to please the wrong audience. An audience that isn't there for you, that cannot bring you the peace, that cannot bring you the joy, the fulfillment, the satisfaction. An audience that you will clamor for and you will try to get their attention, but yet that audience doesn't have the substance to make your song you and your story you and unfold in the way that only the maker can. Moses learned that. And he learned that in a very difficult way. But he knew that once he got his audience right and he encountered the one who loved him more than anyone else, that would give him the courage to take the next chapter of his life in a direction that only God could take. So Exodus chapter 33, we read together. Verse 14 and following, and this is what the Bible said. God says to Moses, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he, Moses, said to him, If your presence does not go with us, if your presence is not with me, do not lead me up from here. Do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I, And your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will, I will, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, please show me your glory. God said, I myself will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. The Lord further said, you cannot see my face for mankind, humanity shall not see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me. You shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and he stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law and yet sin, and yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting the punishment of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. And Moses, he hurried then, (laughs) 
to bow low toward the ground and worship. And he said, If in any way I have found favor in your sight, Lord, please may the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our wrongdoing and our sin, and take us as your own possession. This is an encounter where a human, a person just like you, just like me, experiences the glory of God. And in this passage, we read about it, and Moses asks God to show him his glory. But what Moses is doing is something that happens perhaps for you, and if it hasn't happened, then perhaps it will. Moses actually, in the context of this passage, this is not really a strange request. What Moses has lived through in this moment is a deep season of brokenness and harm. What do I mean? Well, Moses has this moment where he has led the people and he has sacrificed and he has given his best for the Lord and for people and for what he believes. And he's led them out of bondage into freedom. We've walked through that together in the last few weeks. And yet in this encounter that we see today, something happened. And what happened is Moses was trying his best to serve the Lord and serve his people. He has this holy encounter just a few chapters earlier with God to deliver to the people something that would help the people be better. Something that would help the world be a better place. Something that would transform the hearts, the minds, the strength, and the soul of the people Do you know what that thing was that Moses had? It was an encounter with God where he would deliver to the people 10 principles upon which the world could be a better place. You and I would know them today as the 10 commandments. I mean, yeah, you might remember a season of time where those were quoted in your schools or where those were written in public institutions. And yet, because of offense instead of encounter, because of a horizontal audience instead of a vertical audience, we remove those things from life. And we see the effects in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own souls, in our own strength, as well as in the world around us. And so we live for other agendas, other causes, instead of things that God had given to his people to help them be better and for the world to work in a better way. But before we're too hard on ourselves, we have to go back and look at the context. Because in this moment, as Moses is with the Lord in this encounter where the glory of God is on the mountain and Moses is receiving Ten Commandments to bring to the people, he's not only receiving Ten Commandments. If you go back and look through the chapters of Exodus, what you will see is that God is giving him instructions about worship. He gives him instructions about where to build a place and what it would look like and what the people, when they come to that place, should wear and how they should bring themselves and how they should approach God. There's detail after detail that God gives to Moses so that his people can truly be distinguished and different in the world where they can encounter God in a personal and powerful way that is life-changing and world-changing. And Moses has this holy moment with God and he writes down these 10 things, but he's received so much more and he can't wait to bring those out to the people so that they too may encounter God and be changed. And so he comes down. And perhaps if you've been in church long enough, you know the story. He comes down and what does he see? He sees these people whom he loves, whom he's led, whom he's brought out of the worst circumstances into a new opportunity, a new life. And he's shown them that it was God who delivered them and it was God who had something better for them. And it was God who was with them. And they've seen these miracles and they've seen God perform the impossible. And they've had these moments over and over and over again. Perhaps like you and I, where God has revealed his character, his faithfulness, his truth. They had that. And then in a moment when Moses comes down to help them encounter him in another deeply personal way, what does he see? The people of God worshiping idols of this world. The people of God giving their best song 
their best chapter, their best stanza, their best life toward a calf made of gold. Gold, yes, something very valuable, something that we would wear as jewelry or that we would appreciate or that has X number of value as a hedge in this world's economy. Yeah, I understand those things. And so they made an image of gold and they worshipped the image. They worshipped something that they could create and they made their audience horizontal. They began to write the story of their life for a world that really wouldn't matter, that couldn't sustain them, that couldn't free them, that couldn't change them, that couldn't quicken their spirits toward what life was truly meant to be. That's what they did. They began to encounter the world right here on this level. And Moses coming off of the mountain, experiencing God with 10 principles to make the world a better place, to make your life a better place, to make your relationship with God and your relationship with humanity incredibly better. Designed to help people be incredibly better. God's word to people to change their life, to allow them to encounter him the right way and therefore encounter one another the right way. When Moses sees them worshiping this golden calf, giving the best parts of their life, their best song, their best life, their best effort, their best work, to an idol that would not sustain, would not be there. When Moses sees this, he shatters the tablets. In a moment of brokenness, anger, frustration, deep personal pain because he knows that he's laid his life on the line for these people. In that moment where he's sacrificed and been willing to sacrifice all and to see that they've turned on him, he breaks the commandments. He shatters them. And it's in this moment, if you place yourself in the shoes of, moment, of Moses, where you will understand that truly he feels deep brokenness. Isolation, perhaps. Anger. Loneliness. Discouragement. Lostness. Lacking answers and understanding because everything that he's done up to this point and everything that he's believed in has left him alone. So what does he do? He goes back to the right audience. He takes his life back to the right audience. And what we read together, what we sang about in just, just a few moments ago about, Lord, show me your glory. What you see is in that moment, Moses goes back up to the mountain. And he goes back to the only place that he knows to go. And there he lays out his heart before God. He lays out his desire. He lays out his knowledge. He lays out all that he is. And he turns his attention toward the Lord in this moment. And he says, Lord, I need your presence. Lord, I need your favor. Lord, I need your peace. Lord, I need your direction. Lord, I need your power. Lord, I need your cleansing and your forgiveness. Lord, I need you. And what we see in this moment is that the audience for Moses had shifted from where it was because he had his eyes on the people. He had his eyes on the golden calf. He had his eyes on the promised land. He had his eyes on the miracles of the past. But what he needed in this moment was to get his eyes back on the only audience that matters. And in this moment, what you and I read is that Moses has an encounter with his God. You and I need an encounter with God like that each and every day. We need an encounter with God where our audience is not here, but our audience is there. Our audience is the one who is with us when the world falls apart. Our audience is the one who is with us when people turn on us, when they abandon us, when they turn against us. Our audience is the one who can be faithful in a world that is faithless. Our audience is one who can be powerful when we feel powerless. 
Our audience is one whom we don't have to amuse with our post and get them to laugh at us and to think that we want to fit in with them. Our audience is one with, with whom we want to fit in with him because he is the one who satisfies, who saves, who changes, and who gives life a whole new meaning and purpose. By the way, our audience is one who has created you to be the person that you are. Our audience is the one who's created you to do the work that you can do, your best work, your best ability, your best recreation, your best effort. Your audience is one who has created you to do that. But yet so many times we give our best audience to a boss, an employer, to friends, to people. And we totally leave out the audience that matters the most. And we think it is about that next promotion, that next opportunity that's all about us. Or perhaps that opportunity for our children or our family that's really all about our selfish desires. And instead, we miss the moment of saying, God, you are the audience. Now, what is it that you would do? How is it that my song of life can sing to you? How is it that the poetry that I am writing, the chapters of my story that are unfolding, how can they be your chapters your story how can you write this out in a better way and this point in Moses's life is a wonderful point of turn because he encounters God in the right way if you're taking notes I want to give you a few things today that I think will help you encounter God personally as you leave from this place tomorrow as you walk through life the rest of your chapters the rest of your song how you will begin to say okay the audience matters the audience matters, so who is the audience? And here's the life lesson. We encounter the presence of God when he becomes the audience that matters above all else. We encounter the presence of God when he becomes the audience that matters above all else. We encounter the presence of God when he becomes the audience that matters above all else. Singers, musicians, people, they play for an audience. Politicians, they speak and they create policy for an audience. We all live our lives for an audience, but who's the audience that matters the most? You see, to encounter the presence of God, which Moses did in this moment, he encountered the things that make God God. He encountered the character traits, the attributes. He received answers that only God could give, but he only received that when he determined that God was the audience that mattered the most. And when that happened, he encountered the presence of God. So for you and I to encounter the presence of God, it requires that we determine that he is the audience that matters above all else. What makes God deserving of our worship? What makes God deserving of being our only audience? What makes him the one that should be the audience above all else? Why does it matter? Why is it important that we should determine that there is a God who is worthy and worth our best attention, our best effort, our best ability, our best life? And why is it that so many times within our lives and in the church, we, we tend to find ourselves very similar to the people of God back then in Exodus. We will give God our second best. And we will create God in our image instead of allowing him to be in his image. I mean, that is the challenge that plagues you and I as Christians, is that truly, what do we want? We want God's favor and mercy and grace on our terms, but we don't really want it on his terms. We want our obedience to be shaped in terms of what we want from God, but yet we don't want our obedience in our life and our story to be shaped in what God wants from us. That is a true statement about everyone that I know. And therefore, that hinders our encounter with him. It, it hinders our worship of him. It hinders our relationship away where, in a way where we miss the powerful moments that truly can happen when his presence fills our lives. And why does it matter? What is it about him that requires us to pay attention to him as the main audience? Well, there are a few things that stand out in this passage. The first one is obvious. What makes God so worthy of being our audience deserving of our worship? Number one is his glory. The glory of God, his glory. His glory is different than our glory. There is glory in your life. 
There is glory in how you've been made. There is glory in your success. There is glory in your achievement. But that is only because you have been created in the image of a glorious God who is above all of that and whose glory extends forever and ever and does not cease and is never tattered, shattered, or destroyed. It never ends. His glory reigns supreme. And Moses in this moment says, God, in the midst of all that I've lived for and all that I've seen and all that I've done, God, I really need to see your glory. I really need to experience your glory. I've seen the glory of the world. I've seen the glory of empires. I've seen the glory of kings. I've seen the glory of things that I've accomplished. I've seen the glory of people. I've seen the glory of leadership. I've seen the glory of income. I've seen the glory of all of these things that you and I would live for. And God, it's not enough. God, it's just not enough. I've lived, I've seen, I've written chapters about, and God, it has failed me. But you haven't. God, can I just see your glory for just a moment in my life? God, I, I need to see your glory. It's God's glory that makes him worthy of our worship. And do you notice what God said to Moses about his glory? I, I will allow you to experience and see my glory, but you couldn't stand all of it. You will be placed hidden between rocks. I'm going to come by you and you will be beside me. I'm going to be that close. But you really wouldn't be able to see my glory, even the glory of my face, because there's no human that can truly see all of me in my glory face to face and live. And I've got so much more for you to do in your life. I'm not finished with you yet. You will see my glory one day in eternity forever and ever, but... We're not going to end it now. So I'll tell you what, Moses, I'll make a deal with you. I will allow you to experience and feel and sense all the glory of what it is to know me. But you can only get a glimpse of it. And you can only get a glimpse as I pass by. You can see the back, but not the front. You can't see my face. And so God places his hand on Moses and he puts him in the cleft of the rock. What a great place to be, by the way, in your life. Because it's one thing to be on a platform and to be able to say, look at me and look at all that I'm doing and look at my life and my job and my friends and my network and my accomplishments and all of that. And in all of that pride of life, there is nothing but emptiness. It will satisfy for a moment, but the glory will depart us every time. If that's the identity of who we are as Christians and if that's how we live, then we are the emptiest and saddest of people. Because we have been exposed to a glory of a maker who is so much greater, who can steer and determine the course of our lives, and yet we would exchange that for a golden calf. And what a sad moment. Moses determines that the best place to be, to experience the glory of God, is not out there for everyone else to see, but in the cleft of a rock, hidden by God, covered by his hand, where the glory can be seen in just a parting glimpse as he goes by. And what a great lesson for you and I to encounter God because that's where you experience the power and the glory of God. What makes God so glorious? In this moment, Moses gets to experience the one who has done all of these miracles, who has brought his people out of Egypt, all of these things that he's seen. But he also gets to experience the maker of heaven and earth, all of the mystery of the universe, every part of every good thing that God has made, everything that makes God God and not us, everything that makes him divine and not human and not mortal, all of that wrapped up into one big path package goes right by Moses in this moment. And you can only imagine that at that moment, if you've ever felt chill, or the presence of God, what do you think Moses felt in that moment as the holy divine being maker of the earth who would redeem humanity in all of its creation, in all of its brokenness, in all of its beauty, that God passes right by Moses. The glory of God is present in that moment. You see, it's God's glory that makes him worthy of worship. It's God's glory that surpasses everything else that we live for and hope for and seek to attain and achieve. If you live to get to a point where you can retire at plenty, then you have missed out on the glory of God. Retirement is not your glorious end. No, your presence and the place that you have in the cleft of the rock with your maker and creator and soul lover and the one who has made your song to sing and your story to be written in beauty, that is where your glory lies. And that's when we get our eyes off of a horizontal world and audience and we begin to move them upward to a vertical audience, an audience of one. It's the glory of God that passes by all of the majesty of the universal maker is present in this moment, in this very moment, right 
beside Moses. Moses was not alone. He was there with God. He was encountering God. He was experiencing God. And it's his glory that makes our God deserving of our best, our best song, our best story, our best worship. This was an encounter that was life-changing for him. Number two, what else makes God worthy of our worship? It's not only his glory, it's his favor. It's his favor. God's favor upon our lives makes him worthy of our worship. That word favor is a powerful word. You read it and we read it together. Moses said, if I have found favor in your sight, I have known you by name. And the Lord responds and says, yeah, I know who you are. And yes, you have found favor. That word favor, I, I, I hesitate to use this word because I, I think that in our generation, this is basically what we want God to be, but we misplace this title on him because we kind of dumb it down to our human, human standards. This word favor is basically like friendship, a best friend. But what's so challenging, I, I hesitated to even bring that word to the table because um, we have friends. We have people that at even seasons of life, we believe they are our best friends. And then they turn on you. They were there, and then they're not there. They have a bad day, and you have a bad day. You confide in them, and they sell you out. We all have a concept and an image of friendship, and therefore then we would apply that to God. Well, God, you're my friend. But, but God's not your casual drinking buddy. God's not your friend that you go and dance with. God's not your friend that, that you share certain things with, but you don't share other things with. God's not that. You see, God has this divine sense of favor on those he loves and those who love him. God's sense of friendship is not like the friendship that the world offers us or that you have on your social list of hundreds or thousands of people that you follow or follow you. I mean, how many of them do you really know? But God says to Moses, I know you. I know you. I know you're good. I know you're bad. I know your wins. I know your losses. I know your desires and I know the things that are holy and yet I know the things that are unholy. And in all of that, my hand, Moses, still rests upon you. I don't change like your friends change. My attitude doesn't change. I will show compassion on whom I show compassion. I will be merciful upon whom I will be merciful. And thus the implication is God also has the prerogative to not be compassionate towards those he doesn't desire to be compassionate. Why? Because he knows something about the character of people. And God has the prerogative to not be merciful on some. Why? Because everybody would clamor and claim mercy and grace and compassion from God, but yet they would not show it themselves. God's favor is so much greater. God's friendship is so much stronger. There are some things that come out about God's favor in this passage that make him the kind of God that's worthy to be praised when we encounter him. The kind of God that's worthy to be our only audience. There are some things that come out. And Moses knew these things about God's favor. What is God's favor? Where is it shown? Well, the first one that stands out was very simple. I need your presence, God. God's favor in your life is all about sensing and knowing his presence is with you. I mean, not just when you need it. Or not when you just put the quarter in the divine slot machine and say, Hey God, come on with it. Yep, I'm with you. And then you go on about your way. It'll never work for you that way. It doesn't work for anyone that way. Because that's not favor. Favor is the constant presence of God. When you're in the foxhole, God is there with you and he never left you. He was not a part of your life in a moment when you needed and then not a part of your life when you're out there battling on your own. God is always, his presence is there. And what did he say? Moses, I'm with you. What did Moses need in this moment? God, I need to know 
your presence because I just don't want to move ahead. I don't want to take one step forward. I don't want to do this life this way if you're not a part of it. God said, Moses, some translations will actually say this. Moses, you're my friend. Can you imagine that? God responding to you in a personal encounter that you have with him because he becomes the only audience that matters in your life. He is that important. And God responds to Moses. Moses, I understand what you've been through. Moses, you're my friend. And you will get up from this moment. And you will move ahead in your life because my presence is going to be with you. You have my favor. Favor is not just presence. Favor is also the peace of God. Favor is also the peace of God to allow your spirit when it's vexed and broken and hardened and destroyed by whatever it is that you've walked through. Even perhaps moments where it is your pride that you stand on and your image that you stand on and you realize that that's not enough. That platform of life that you've built of wood, hay and stubble that will not stand in the end. When that platform crumbles beneath you and your feet begin to fall, the moment of recognizing that no, what really mattered to me was the peace I had in my relationship with the audience of one who mattered the most. And it's his peace that fills me in those moments when things fall apart and when they're challenging, when I don't understand them and when I don't have direction. The peace of God filled Moses' heart in this encounter. So much to the point that he was able to re-deliver these principles to God's people again. He was able to walk out of this moment with something else for God's people again. But he was only able to do it by getting his audience right and experiencing the favor of God through the peace of that kind of relationship that would guide him forward. God's favor is his presence. God's favor is his peace. God's favor is also his power. His power. God's power in your life as a follower of him, as a child of God, redeemed and saved by Jesus, his power is a part of his favor. His power for you. His power to accomplish things that you and I may not be able to accomplish in our own strength, by our own will, by our own design. His power allows these things to happen. There were all of these examples prior to the Ten Commandment moment where God's power had come through. And guess what? From this moment forward, with God's favor on his life, because of this encounter with God, God's power would be faithful again to Moses. God's power is a part of his favor. So God's favor resting on your life is to experience in the moment of an encounter with him his presence, his peace, and his power on behalf of those who want him to be the audience of their lives. That's what makes your song beautiful, your story amazing. That's what unfolds who you were created to be because your eyes of your heart, your mind, your strength, and your soul, they get off of a temporary audience and they turn to one that's eternal and it begins to give you purpose. That's why God is worthy of our worship. Let me give you a third reason why we should encounter him as the audience that matters the most and worship him. It's not just his glory. It's not just his favor. It's also his holiness, the holiness of God. The word holiness is something that we often misunderstand because we think that holiness is perfection. Well, that's true when you apply it to God, but it's not true when we apply it to ourselves. I mean, we strive to be holy. There are enough commandments in Scripture where God says to his children, be holy as I am holy. And you know what? I've searched my life. I know that perhaps you have um, to find someone else who is holy as God is holy. And you won't find them. They're not there. Your favorite saint, your favorite Christian, your favorite grandma, your favorite relative, your favorite person, when you go and you look, you will find that holiness, as in terms of perfection, does not exist. I mean, it's quite interesting because so many times the audience of the world will use that very thing to attack you. They will. Oh, well, look at you. They don't play fair, by the way. They don't play by the rules of God. That's why that doesn't need to be the audience that we bow to, listen to, or cower to as followers of God. They're not going to play by the rules of God. They're going to play by their own rules so that they can get your attention as an audience. They want you to be a part of their audience, and then they can slash you and cut you when it's convenient for them. And they will use your faith against you to beat you down. 
every time. Every time. That's why that's not the audience that you want to play to. The audience that you want to play to, that you want to read to, that you want to sing to, that you want to live to, is an audience that is perfect. Perfection. The word holiness applied to God means that he is perfect. There is no impurity in him. He's like a diamond with no blemish. A gold with no dross. He's like silver refined that is pure, but he's better than that. There's nothing wrong innately in him at all. He is perfect in all things. Perfect in his thoughts. When's the last time you had a perfect thought? Perfect in his actions. When's the last time you lived a perfect day? Perfect in his desires and his motives. Are your motives always pure? No, we see in our world that that just doesn't describe humanity. And yet... Our only hope in attaining a sliver of that within our own beings is to make the right audience the number one in our lives. To go after one who is perfect, who is holy. The word holiness also means separation. Separation. In this passage, one of the things that Moses says is, God, show me your glory. Let your presence be with us. Don't leave me from here if I don't have those things. Because how will the world know that there is any distinction between us and them? How will the world know that there's any distinction between us and them? Now, if there wasn't right there in that one simple passage a dagger to the hearts of most of us as Christians, then I don't know what would be because the reality in most of our lives, if we're honest, if we peel back the social media, if we peel back the relationships that we have, if we peel back our interactions, even with the people in our own homes, there is no distinction. How do we get the distinction? By encountering a God for who he is, not who we want him to be. By experiencing a, a favor in who he is and that applied to our lives in such a way that transforms how we relate to him and to others. And by recognizing that it is his glorious holiness, separation, uniqueness, perfection. That as that permeates my heart and my soul, it begins to change. Not only my encounter with him, but how I am distinguished, distinct separate, even in the world that I live in. You see, Moses, in this moment, realized one of the truths that should apply to Christians and believers in God for all generations. We are called to be holy. And holiness is distinction. Or, if you like a better word, it's to be distinguished. I mean, that's a great word, an old English word, to be distinguished. It used to describe gentlemen and women who had attained something that was better than most. Now, that could be used in a negative, but apply that to your faith. Are you distinguished in your holiness and your relationship with God? Because an encounter with God will create within us a desire to be different. Holy. Separate from the world. It's God's holiness, his uniqueness, his perfection. He is of totally different quality and kind than anyone else. Quite frankly, this is one of the best things that makes him unique from all the other alternatives that are out there, both philosophically and religiously. The God of the Bible, the maker of the universe, the divine that permeates our world. He is of totally different quality and kind than anything else that's out there. What does that mean? He is holy. And he deserves our worship and our best because he's holy. The fourth and final thing, when we encounter the presence of God, as he becomes the audience that matters above all else, we worship him because of his worthiness. His worthiness. In the passage that we read, listen to the character of God. God says, you can't see my face. Man, mankind, humanity can't see me and live. In other words... He's totally separate, totally glorious. He's showing favor, but he's worthy of something else. He's not of the same caliber as humanity. He goes on and says, 
Um, I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion to. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. In other words, he has an authority that is beyond our determination of what we want him to do. He has the kind of being and the power to back it up to do as he so pleases. Now, a lot of people don't like that, but yet that's how we want to live. So if we have the prerogative to act that way in our relationship with God and with others, why doesn't God have the prerogative to judge us in purity and truth for what he knows about us and who we are? He does. He is worthy. He goes on and describes his character. I am the Lord, the Lord God. In other words, I'm not just the master, I am the maker. I am not just the one who has made you. I am the author of all of it. And I dictate the whole thing. And you are a part of this glorious thing. If you recognize the audience, he's everything. He's Lord and he's God. A beautiful picture, by the way, of the Trinity. But I'll get into that another day. I am the Lord God, compassionate. I'm merciful. I am slow to anger. I abound in faithfulness. I am true. I keep faithfulness to thousands. I forgive wrongdoings. And yet even those who continually violate my law and sin, I will not leave them unpunished. He's worthy. Like he has all of this ability, all of this capacity in who he is as a part of his character. This is his being. And this is who he is toward those who will turn their eyes off of the audience that is here to the audience that is there, that will turn their eyes, their hearts, their souls, their minds, and their strength toward him and encounter him. They begin to see that he is worthy of everything that is my song, everything that is my soul, everything that is my story, everything that is my life. He is worthy. He is totally separate. And oh, by the way, in case you missed it, he's a God who redeems because he sent a worthy Savior, a Savior who also lived in perfection and who wasn't per perfect just because he was the being and the deity of God in the universe forever and ever. Amen. He became flesh and blood and battled everything that you and I battle, every temptation, the devil coming at him over and over again, demons trying to bring him down, people belittling him, tearing him down. And he walked through the valley of the shadow of this life of death and he overcame because he's worthy. And that's why you read in the book of Revelation, it's said over and over again, I looked for someone who was worthy and there was no one worthy to open the scroll of those sons and daughters whose names were written in the book of life and yet there was one. And he was a lamb, unblemished, created before the, the beginning of the world, not created but present in the beginning of the world. He was the son of God and that lamb who gave his life holy in wholesomeness and purity is worthy to open the scroll and all the elders and all of the saints of God cry holy, holy, holy to the one who was worthy to do that. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say that? Do you know who the Bible references? Obviously, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus, your Savior, by whom you have salvation, the only one that really opens up the door for us to encounter God. So God is worthy of our worship because of his glory, his favor, his holiness, and his worthiness. And therefore, it, it creates in me this question, what's my attitude? How do I approach God? What's appropriate in my worship, in my desire to encounter God in a very personal way? Number one, and I close with these, reverence. Do you know what reverence is? Reverence is an attitude of deep respect and awe manifested outwardly. Reverence is an attitude of deep respect and awe manifested outwardly. Someone doesn't know that you have reverence for them unless you show it. Well, God, I revere you, but I'm going to worship you like this. God, I, I have reverence for you over my life, but I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to write my own story, my own chapter, my own song, my own life, my way. That's not reverence. That's why I hesitated to use the word friend in regard to favor. Because so many times we approach God as a human friend. And all of the things that we just read that Moses encountered in this holy glorious moment show that God was way more than a friend. And that Moses had way more than a typical encounter. Moses in that moment had reverence. To the point 
that after this moment, you read forward in Exodus, and what do you see about Moses? He, at this point, then had to cover his face going forward. Because this encounter was so meaningful that his life was changed, and his countenance was changed in such a way that he would have to wear a mask and a veil because the glory of God was so powerful, that encounter was so powerful, that he was a different human being. The reverence was so deep that his life was changed. Worship requires reverence. Reverence can be a moment, yes, of silence, but a moment of silence that's turned upward, but then is expressed perhaps through the deepest prayers that you ever prayed or the most beautiful song that you could ever sing or just the attempt to get it out, which sometimes I know is hard, but you get it out because you've turned to the audience that matters the most. Reverence. Reverence is an appropriate response. Repentance. Repentance is an appropriate response. Do you notice what Moses asked for in the midst of this encounter? I think this is what causes many of us to miss the deepest encounters that we can have with God. Moses said to God, God, would you forgive my sins? My sins. My sins of omission and commission, my sins of action and attitude. And God, because... I do care. Would you forgive their sins too? God, would you forgive them? And, and yes, they turn their audience to a golden calf, to something creative. And yes, they live their lives out on a platform that's going to crumble and fall. And yes, they do that. But God, would you draw near to them in such a way that you begin to change us? Do you realize that repentance is change? Repentance is not just saying, God, forgive me. Moses didn't just walk off the hill saying, God, forgive me and forgive them. That's what most of us want in our relationship with God. And therefore, we dumb down our faith and we dumb down our power and we dumb down our encounter with God because that's all we want. We go into a box and we tell someone, I did this so that we'll feel better and we can move on with life. Or we text or we telephone or we telegraph someone and we tell them what we did so that we can get it off our chest. Or we may go to someone. But yet what we don't usually do, and this is what diminishes our worship and our encounter with God, is what we don't usually do is after we telephone, text, telegraph, instafart, whatever it is, and you put it all out there and all this knowledge, we never say, God, change me. God, change me. God, help me to turn this direction in a way that truly this encounter changes me. And that's what Moses had in this moment. It wasn't just a moment of reverence. It was a moment of repentance. Repentance. And with that, here's the third and the final thing. For what is the appropriate response when you encounter this God for who he is and what he does? What's the appropriate response? How do you respond to God appropriately when you experience his glory, his favor, when you experience all that he is in his holiness, when you understand who he is as a worthy savior, that's when you worship. And worship is an expression of a life-changing encounter with God where you were going a certain direction and you turn your attention away from the audience of the world and you turn your attention to the audience that matters the most. Worship is acknowledging. Are you ready for this? Worship is acknowledging. It's real easy. God's glory. God's favor. God's holiness. And God's reverence. God's worthiness. Through reverence and repentance. Let me say it again. Worship is this. It's acknowledging God's glory, His favor, His holiness, and His worthiness through reverence and repentance. That's worship. And that worship for you may be this. 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 But in all those things, it's a moment where you are genuinely encountering the audience that is above all else, the audience that matters most, the audience that is worthy, the audience that is holy, the audience that is glorious above all else. And reverence and a true heart, soul, mind, and strength desire to turn from this to this, to allow this to change this, 
that's when you encounter God in a very personal way. And that's what we see Moses did in this moment. And that is my prayer for you. As Moses said, that is my prayer for me. Because that makes your song worth singing. And your story, as it's told, worth being read, worth being shouted, worth being proclaimed. Because you've got the audience right in your heart and in your life. And it makes a difference in who you are. I'd like to pray that for you today. With heads bowed and with eyes closed. I want to give you a personal moment with God before we close. And perhaps if you dig deep for just a moment within your heart. Maybe you've never had an encounter with God like that. Perhaps you've had religion, but it's never permeated and penetrated your heart. Maybe your story has been for you, but not for him. Your song is sung for others, but not for him. And in this moment, in humility, reverence, perhaps from your heart you even say, I need some repentance. So I ask you and invite you to pray from the depths of your being created in the image of God, maker, father of heaven. I know that you are here. I sense your presence right now. And your glory is better than anything else that I could achieve or hope for. You're separate, distinct and holy in this world. And because of your love for me, you are worthy of my attention. For those who perhaps you've never received the worthy Son of God, Jesus, into your heart as your personal Savior in relationship with him, then perhaps right now your heart's cry is, and God, it's time for me to receive the worthy Savior, Jesus, into my life. To cleanse me as your son, as your daughter. And to give me a hope and a future that is beyond what I know today. Or perhaps the cry of your heart today is, God, cleanse my heart. Purify my direction. Give me a purpose as my audience is you today. God, I want to see your glory, your peace, presence, and power because of your favor. God, I want to become distinct because of your goodness. And I want to acknowledge that you are the one who is worthy of all praise for my life. Maybe that's where you are. And so I pray that you will cry that out to God as you encounter him. And God, I just want to thank you this morning for all of your children, sons and daughters. For we are all on a journey with you. And every person today is at a point. It's not good or bad. It's not that they are good or bad people. It is. And it is this moment that determines everything as we determine who our audience is going to be. God, my prayer for my own heart and for all of those that you love, that you would be our audience. And it's because of the worthy Son of God, Jesus, and in his name we pray. And all God's children said, amen. That's what it means to encounter God. Isn't that beautiful? And you're a part of that. Your story is a part of that. My prayer for you as you go this week, you will find a time in your life and in your schedule to worship, to encounter God, to slow down a minute and to make him the audience that means the most. But in that moment where you make him the audience that means the most in your life, that you will also receive, not just sing, you will also receive from him instruction and direction that won't cause you to simply go right back to golden calves but that will cause you to be a little more holy to express a little more worthiness to show a little more glory and to experience a little more favor and that hunger in your life will create you into a better worshiper you will become that kind of person as you encounter God as the only audience that matters the most. That's my prayer for you. I want to thank you for being present today as the world opens back up. We have made every effort to continue to communicate to people this word of life and truth and meaning in this world in spite of a world that continues to struggle 
we know that there is an answer that is beyond. So thank you for being a part of that for you and online as well as for those of you in the room. Thank you for being faithful in your giving. Throughout the season of life, this church has continued to be able to function and to thrive because of giving. Both those. Thank you for being obedient. That is actually a part of worship. If God is worthy and he is holy and he shows his favor and he is glorious, then I don't want to give him a nickel. I'm not going to give him second best when he's given me his all. That's insulting to a holy God. Part of giving is worship. Thank you for worshiping with your best. For those of you in the room as well as for those of you online. And as we continue to become the kind of people who encounter God in such a way, then when the world opens up, when things get back to whatever you might call normal, they won't be normal. You'll be better because you've encountered the living God. God bless you all, and may you go from this place encountering Him and worship Him as our Savior and Lord. God bless you.